Hey, it's Guy here. Just a quick note to tell you, we've got a brand new episode coming up. But in the meantime, take a listen to this one from our archives. It's called How We Love. And it's all about love, why we love, and how using mathematics might help you find the perfect person. Enjoy. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? I've never known that... Delivered it, at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz, and our show today, ideas around how we love. So love is instinctive, right? It's buried deep inside the most primitive part of our brains. But the way it works, why we're drawn to certain people and not others, it's still not entirely understood. So this hour, TED speakers who are all exploring love, and not just romantic love, but the kind of love you might feel for your dad or your brother, or best friend. So our first story is a romantic love story with help from math, data, and algorithms as told on the TED stage. My name is Amy Webb, and a few years ago, I found myself at the end of yet another fantastic relationship that came burning down in a spectacular fashion. And uh, I thought, what's wrong with me? I don't understand why this keeps happening. So I asked everybody in my life what they thought, I turned to my grandmother, who always had plenty of advice, uh, and she said, stop being so picky. You've got to date around. And most importantly, true love will find you when you least expect it. In short, I was trying to figure out, well, what's the probability of my finding Mr. Wright? Well, at the time, I was living in the city of Philadelphia, and uh, it's a big city, and I figured, you know, in this entire place, there are lots of possibilities. Um, Population of Philadelphia, uh, has 1.5 million people. Figure about half of that are men, so that takes the number down to 750,000. I'm looking for a guy between the ages of 30 and 36, which uh, was only 4% of the population, so now I'm dealing with the possibility of 30,000 men. I was looking for somebody who was Jewish, because that's what I am, and it was important to me. It's only 2.3% of the population. I figure I'm attracted to maybe one out of 10 of those men, uh, and there was n- you know, no way I was gonna deal with somebody who was an avid golfer. Um, (laughs) So that basically meant there were 35 men for me that I could possibly date in the entire city of Philadelphia. So if I have two possible strategies at this point, I'm sort of figuring out. One, I can take my grandmother's advice and sort of least expect my way into maybe bumping into the one out of 35 possible men in the entire 1.5 million (laughs) person city of Philadelphia, or I could try online dating. Now, I like the idea of online dating because it's predicated on an algorithm. And that's really just a simple way of saying, I've got a problem, I'm going to use some data, run it through a a system, and get to a solution. So in my case, I thought, will data and an algorithm lead me to my Prince Charming? So I decided to sign on. Now, the biggest problem is that I hate filling out questionnaires of any kind. Uh, And I certainly don't like questionnaires that are like Cosmo quizzes. So I just copied and pasted from my resume. Um, So in the descriptive part up top, I said that I was an award-winning journalist and a future thinker. When I was asked about fun activities and like my ideal date, I said monetization (laughs) and fluency in Japanese. I talked a lot about JavaScript. Fluent in Japanese and JavaScript. That is, that's hot. That's super sexy. That's sexy, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah maybe that wasn't the best way for me to uh, to introduce myself. But, you know, the crazy thing is that even though I had foolishly copied and pasted from my resume, it didn't stop the dating services from matching me with other people. And it certainly didn't stop those people from asking me out on dates. So how'd they go? Yeah, I had some dates that were pretty rough. Um mm. I was being set up with very, very orthodox rabbis, which was like a no-go from the get-go. People who were super interested in sports, there was being stuck with the check 
there was another guy who was diminutive and ordered a lot of Long Island iced teas. And we were out doing karaoke on our first date. And he, he ran up on stage and sang a bunch of songs and then dedicated them to his girlfriend. And I was like, I have no idea who you are. I just met you like 20 minutes ago. I am not your girlfriend. Now, the thing you should know about Amy Webb is that she crunches numbers for a living. She analyzes data that helps big companies make more accurate predictions. And so she started to wonder, what if love isn't so mysterious at all? What if instead of analyzing data for her clients, why not do it for herself? And what if by doing that, she could game the system? You know, in any other case, I would do market research. Why wouldn't I do market research you know, on myself. So dating websites are sort of predicated on some pretty basic, not very exciting math. And in order to make things work, there has to be a limited number of choices, a limited number of variables. So it's a lot easier to parse, do you like cats or dogs, than it is to parse something like chemistry, right? Knowing that there was superficial data that was being used to match me up with other people, I decided instead to ask my own questions. What was every single possible thing that I could think of that I was looking for in a mate? So I was looking for compatibility in terms of work ethic, religion. So I started writing. You know, musical tastes. And writing. I wanted somebody who had a certain attitude towards money. And writing. I was looking for somebody who was going to be 20 pounds heavier than I was at all times. Somebody who was going to be totally okay with forcing our child to start taking piano lessons at age three. It was a pretty exhaustive list. And at the end, I had amassed 72 different data points, which to be fair, is a lot. So what I did was I went through and I prioritized that list. I broke it into a top tier and a second tier of points. Um, and I, I ranked everything uh, starting at 100 uh, and going all the way down to 91. So once I had all this done, I then built a scoring system. What I wanted to do was to sort of mathematically calculate whether or not I thought the guy that I found online would be a match with me. I figured there'd be a minimum of 700 points before I would agree to email somebody or respond to an email message. For 900 points, I'd agree to go out on a date, and I wouldn't even consider any kind of relationship before somebody had crossed the 1,500-point threshold. And this is, like, unbelievable. You, you are like Alan Turing, like, cracking the Enigma code. You've cracked the online dating code. Well, I cracked it for myself. And I think that's what this comes right down to. A lot of people are... Um, they either go into relationships not really knowing what they want and they change or they've settled. And when you make your list, when you really think about who it is that's going to make you happy in the long term and what you're going to need, that should be the time that you make the most detailed list of your entire life. I know people who have a, a handful of things that they're looking for in a mate, but who have grocery lists that are three pages long. You are grocery shopping for a soulmate. There isn't a lot of science behind cracking the code. It's, it's about figuring out what you need to make you happy and then going out and getting it. You know, in my case, I didn't want to go out on 50 dates. I wanted to go out on one date with the right person and be done. Well, as it turns out, this worked pretty well. So I go back online now. I found Jewish Doc 57, who's incredibly good looking, incredibly well-spoken. He had walked along the Great Wall. He likes to travel as long as it doesn't involve a cruise ship, right? And I thought, I've done it. I've cracked the code. I have just found the Jewish Prince Charming of my family's dreams. There was only one problem. He didn't like me back. And I guess the one variable that I haven't considered is the competition. Who are all of the other women on these dating sites? I found Smiley Girl in 1978. <laughs> she said she was a fun girl who is happy and outgoing. She listed her job as teacher. She said she is silly, nice, and friendly. She likes to make people laugh a lot. At this moment, I knew, clicking after profile after profile after profile that looked like this, that I needed to do some market research. So I created 10 fake male profiles. Now, before I lose all of you, all right, Understand that I did this strictly to gather data about everybody else in the system. I didn't carry on crazy catfish-style relationships with anybody. 
I really was just scraping their data. But I didn't want everybody's data. I only wanted data on the women who were going to be attracted to the type of man that I really, really wanted to marry. And mainly what I was looking at was two different data sets. So I was looking at qualitative data. So what was the humor, the tone, the voice, the communication style that these women shared in common? And also quantitative data. So what was the average length of their profile? What, how much time was spent between messages? I wanted to figure out how to maximize my own um, profile online. And as it turns out, I did a really good job. I was the most popular person online. <laughs> and as it turns out, lots and lots of men wanted to date me. Well, not too long after that, I found this guy. And he said that he was culturally Jewish. Uh, he talked in detail about travel. He looked and talked exactly like what I wanted. And immediately, he scored 850 points. It was enough for a date. Three weeks later, we met up in person for what turned out to be a 14-hour-long conversation that went from coffee shop to restaurant to another coffee shop to another restaurant. Well, a year and a half after that, we were non-cruise ship traveling uh, through Petra, Jordan when he got down on his knee and proposed. A year after that, we were married, and about a year and a half after that, our daughter, Petra, was born. <laughs> That's incredible, it's like a, it's like a movie. I mean, it's, it's amazing that that happened, that all that happened. It is, so afterwards, I eventually did show him the list. So fourth date in, I said, listen, I gotta tell you something. Yeah. And I took the list out and I said, here's how we came to be together. And he thought that it was great. Um, one of the things that, that was on the list was, was looking for somebody who would appreciate the beauty of a well-crafted spreadsheet. Um, yeah, that's and, totally, uh, that's exactly the right way to go. Well, and it was. And he did. Wow. I mean, so, so if technology is like changing, you know, the way we find love, right? And if the algorithms can be gamed. I don't know, couldn't it like lead to the perfect person, like the person you are meant to be with forever? I think technology is a really useful tool to bring people together. But at the end of the day, it's up to us. Technology has made a lot of things in life much more efficient, much easier. Love is something that takes work. And it takes work even if you found your soulmate, your 1,500-point man or woman, the person that you are looking for, who is, is the perfect person for you, you both still have to put in some effort. And technology can't solve for that critical element of, of any relationship. For love to endure, it takes human capital. It takes sweat equity, understanding, and it takes people. Amy Webb, she told her story in a memoir. It's called Data, a Love Story. Her full talk is at ted.npr.org. In a moment, the science behind who you love. Our show today, How We Love. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible. First, to Capital One. Capital One knows life doesn't alert you about your credit card. That's why they created Eno, the Capital One assistant that catches things that might look wrong with your credit card, like over-tipping, duplicate charges, or potential fraud, then sends an alert to your phone and helps you fix it. It's another way Capital One is watching out for your money when you're not. Capital One, what's in your wallet? See CapitalOne.com for details. Thanks also to WordPress.com. With powerful site-building tools and thousands of themes to choose from, WordPress.com lets their users pursue what they love by launching a site that's free to start with room to grow. Their customer support team is made up of actual WordPress experts who are standing by to help you 24 hours a day, including weekends. And WordPress users own their content forever. Get 15% off any new plan purchase at wordpress.com slash radio hour. Drag has been around for a while. In the kabuki tradition in Japan, in minstrel shows, in vaudeville. But one TV show made it mainstream now. 
we break down drag's current renaissance. Check out NPR's It's Been a Minute now. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. Today's show, ideas around how we love. And the thing about love is that for at least a century, scientists have been getting closer to the mystery of how it works. You know, the elation, the giddiness, the euphoria, the energy, the possessiveness, the craving, the obsession. This is Helen Fisher. She teaches at Rutgers. I'm a biological anthropologist, and I study love, romance, and personality. I'm also chief scientific advisor to Match.com, the dating service. That's cool. That's actually the, the, the academic stuff. Eh. It's a Match.com. That's cool. Well, thank you. Helen looks at the science behind love, and her research is based on one big idea, that our brains are actually wired to fall in love, that there's actually a drive, a brain circuitry that developed millions of years ago that's devoted entirely to romantic love. People have resisted thinking that romantic love actually is a brain system. They're scared that it'll break the magic. They want romantic love to be part of the supernatural. But why can't their brain chemistry be kind of supernatural? Well, I, on some level, uh, uh, I mean, I don't know. I'm a scientist. I put people in brain scanners. Uh, but, you know, when it actually happens to you, it can feel supernatural. I mean, why isn't it supernatural? Because it's housed in the brain. Uh, why do we want to feel that it's supernatural? Because it feels so good. Okay, so this brain system, it's kind of like a... Sleeping cat. It can be awakened at any time. Any time, any place. And that's partly because... As you grow up, you begin to build what I call an unconscious list of what you're looking for in a partner, which I call your love map. For example, when you walk into a party and... Boom, you look up at her, she fits within that love map, it triggers that brain circuitry, and boom, you're off to the races. And all of a sudden, your brain starts flying through this very subjective list of criteria. Too tall, too short, too fat, too thin, too old, too young, too scruffy, they're out. Wrong accent, they're out. They smile at you, they don't have any teeth, they're out. And if that person makes the cut, your brain... Is becoming active, is giving you that pleasing sensation, is pumping out the dopamine to make you feel more optimistic, energetic. You feel that intense rush. And it happens in a flash. And you're not really sure what's going on, but you know something is going on. So what's happening? Well, Helen explains the science behind it on the TED stage. I and my colleagues, Art Aaron and Lucy Brown and others, have put 37 people who are madly in love into a functional MRI brain scanner. 17 who were happily in love, 15 who had just been dumped, and we're just starting our third experiment, studying people who report that they're still in love um, after 10 to 25 years of marriage. So uh, we found activity in a tiny little factory near the base of the brain called the ventral tegmental area. We found activity in some cells called the A10 cells, cells that actually make Take dopamine, a natural stimulant, and spray it to many brain regions. Indeed, this part, the VTA, is part of the brain's reward system. It's part of what we call the reptilian core of the brain, associated with wanting, with motivation, with focus, and with craving. In fact, the same brain region where we found activity becomes active also when you feel the rush of cocaine. Okay, but, but I mean, like, what makes you get that rush for, for one person? right, over, over somebody else. Well, I wondered about that. And, of course, this is what interested me so much with the Match.com. They asked me, why do you fall in love with one person rather than another? Yeah. And so I've spent the last three years on this, and uh, psychologists can tell you, uh, we tend to fall in love with somebody from the same socioeconomic background, the same general level of intelligence, the same general level of good looks. And that's about it. That's all they know. They've never found the way two personalities fit together to make a good relationship. So it began to occur to me that maybe your biology pulls you towards some people rather than another. And I have concocted a questionnaire to see to what degree you express dopamine, serotonin, estrogen, and testosterone. I think we've evolved four very broad personality types associated with the ratios of these four chemicals in the brain. And on this dating site that I've created called chemistry.com, I ask you first, 
a series of questions to see to what degree you express these chemicals, and I'm watching who chooses who to love. Helen calls a series of questions the Fisher Temperament Inventory, 56 questions that can gauge whether you have higher or lower levels of certain brain chemicals. And the questions include things like, do you change your mind easily? Or is it important to you to respect authority? And do you prefer interesting friends or loyal friends? And over 13 million people have now uh, taken that questionnaire. About 30,000 take it every month on chemistry.com. So, you know, it's big data. I mean, MASH.com enabled me to really collect a lot of big data. So, so what'd you find out? As it turns out, people who are very high in the dopamine system, curious, creative, spontaneous, energetic, they go for people like themselves. Uh, people who are traditional, the serotonin system, they also go for people like themselves. In the other two cases, opposites attract. People with the traits linked with the testosterone system, the analytical, logical, direct, decisive, tough-minded, they go for their opposite. People who are very expressive of the estrogen system, imaginative, intuitive, good verbal skills, good people skills, they also go for their opposite. So when this happens, and you meet your perfect neurochemical match. Your brain is in love. You are literally addicted to that person. And then you get dumped. People who've been rejected in love show activity in brain regions linked with pain. In fact, one of the brain regions is, is a brain region that um, also becomes active when you feel tooth pain. So it's a really powerfully painful, literally painful experience when you've been rejected in love. Lucy Brown and I, the neuroscientist on our project, are looking at the data of the people who we put into the machine after they had just been dumped. It was, not a, it was very difficult, actually, putting these people in the machine because they were in such bad shape. <laughs> and um, uh, So anyway, we found activity uh, in exactly the same brain region associated with intense romantic love. You know, when you've been dumped, the one thing you'd love to do is just forget about this human being and then go on with your life. But no, you just love them harder. That brain system, the reward system for wanting, for motivation, for craving, for focus becomes more active when you can't get what you want. In this case, life's greatest prize, an appropriate mating partner. I mean, there, there is, like a human need for companionship. Right. right. I mean, we, we need that. Like, I mean, what is it about that? Like, why? Because millions of years ago, the trees began to disappear. <laughs> and we had to get out. And we began to climb on down. And they would rush out onto the grasslands and stand up on two feet, collect what they could to eat, and race back to a place where they were protected. With the beginning of standing came walking. And with that, women had to begin to carry their babies in their arms instead of on their back. So females began to need a partner to help them rear their baby, and we evolved in the human animal, uh, the brain circuitry for romantic love and for deep, profound attachment to another individual, the very hallmarks of, of humanity. So what have I learned from this experiment that I would like to tell the world? Foremost, I've come to think that romantic love is a drive, a basic mating drive, not the sex drive. The sex drive gets you out there looking for a whole range of partners. Romantic love enables you to focus your mating energy on just one at a time, conserve your mating energy, and start the mating process with a single individual. What sums it up best is something that is said by Plato um, over 2,000 years ago. He said, the god of love lives in the state of need. It is a need. It is an urge. It is a homeostatic imbalance. Like hunger and thirst, it's almost impossible to stamp out. So my final statement is, love is in us. It's deeply embedded in the brain. Our challenge is to understand each other. Thank you. Helen Fisher, she wrote about her groundbreaking research in the book, Why We Love. She's given several other TED Talks. Check out all of them at TED.com. Do you think that um, that that love is like a, is like a construct, or do you think it's a fact? It's an experience. 
It's an experience that is mental, emotional, physical, sensual, sensory. It's all-encompassing. <laughs> That's part of why it's so grand, is because it leaves any part of us. It doesn't leave any part of us untouched. Oh, uh, can you introduce yourself, please? I'm Esther Perel. I'm a couples therapist, and I'm the author of the book Mating in Captivity, as well as a sex therapist. When people um, meet you and you say, I'm Esther Perel, I wrote this book, you might have heard of it, Mating in Captivity. What's the, like, the most common question you get from people? Well, the first reaction is usually to the title, Mating in Captivity. Some people know exactly what I mean, and they understand immediately that we don't necessarily like to mate in captivity. And so then the next question is, so can desire be sustained in the long haul? Can you reconcile the domestic and the erotic in one relationship? Can you reconcile um, intimacy and sexuality with the same person for the long haul? And those questions, they're at the heart of what Esther Perel's been studying for 30 years. Questions she explores on the TED stage. So why does good sex so often fade, even for couples who continue to love each other as much as ever? And why does good intimacy not guarantee good sex, contrary to popular belief? Or the next question would be, can we want what we already have? That's the million-dollar question, right? And why is the forbidden so erotic? What is it about transgression that makes desire so potent? And why does sex make babies and babies spell erotic disaster in couples? <laughs> it's kind of the fatal erotic blow, isn't it? And when you love, how does it feel? And when you desire, how is it different? These are some of the questions that are at the center of my exploration on the nature of erotic desire and its concomitant dilemmas in modern love. So I travel the globe, and what I'm noticing is that everywhere where romanticism has entered, there seems to be a crisis of desire. A crisis of desire as in owning the wanting, desire as an expression of our individuality, of our free choice, of our preferences, of our identity, desire that has become a central concept as part of modern love and individualistic societies. Desire was never the organizing principle of sexuality, for sure, in marriage. You know, we had sex because we needed lots of children, and we had sex because it was a woman's marital duty. So desire is very much a concept of our society, of our culture today, of a consumer society, of a society that has the eye in the center, and this eye knows who she is and knows what he wants and is constantly urged to define it and to want more. And so what does that do? What's the we result? We crumble under the weight of expectations. <laughs> you know, we've never invested more in love and we've never divorced more in the name of love. Uh, we're not having a very nice result. Um, that doesn't mean that when we had less expectations, marriages were happier occasions, but um, people had different expectations of life. You know, one of the most important things we've done around marriage is that we've brought happiness down from the heaven and made it first a possibility, and today it's a mandate. So, you know, am I happy in my marriage? <laughs> when was that ever such an important question? This idea that my marriage is supposed to give me something, that I'm supposed to get something from my partner, and that my partner owes me that because somehow it was implicit in our agreement, in our joining together, that we were going to give it to other things. Like, I'll never feel alone again. I'll never worry about abandonment. I'll never feel disconnected. I'll never feel unnoticed. I, it's just this... Um, the thing is, I mean, the thing is, is that, like, I mean, marriage is great. Like, it, it you know, I'm speaking for myself here, of course, but um, I mean, it's, 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 it is that person. It is that person that is, you know, that person is your best friend. And that's our expectation. And I guess In America. I, hmm. <laughs> but I can tell you, I go to many parts of the world where I don't ever hear people say, my partner is my best friend. They have best friends. And that's not their partner. Their partner is their partner. That's a different thing. 
And frankly, many people treat their partners in ways that they would never treat their best friends and allow themselves to say and do things that no best friend would ever accept. Friendship does not operate along the same lines. So what sustains desire and why is it so difficult? And at the heart of sustaining desire in a committed relationship, I think is the reconciliation of two fundamental human needs. On the one hand, our need for security, for predictability, for safety, for dependability, for reliability, for permanence, all these anchoring, grounding experiences of our lives that we call home. But we also have an equally strong need, men and women, for adventure, for novelty, for mystery, for risk, for danger, for the unknown, for the unexpected surprise, you get the gist, for journey, for travel. So reconciling our need for security and our need for adventure into one relationship, or what we today like to call a passionate marriage, used to be a contradiction in terms. Marriage was an economic institution in which you were given a partnership for life in terms of children and social status and succession and companionship. But now we want our partner to still give us all these things. But in addition, I want you to be my best friend and my trusted confidant and my passionate lover to boot and we live twice as long. <laughs> so we come to one person and we basically are asking them to give us what once an entire village used to provide. Give me belonging, give me identity, give me continuity, but give me transcendence and mystery and awe all in one. Give me comfort, give me edge. Give me novelty, give me familiarity. Give me predictability, give me surprise. And we think it's a given and toys and lingerie are gonna save us with that. <laughs> I mean, so if, if marriage has like if marriage has evolved into this thing that's like so, I don't know, like fraught with 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 potential problems and pitfalls and obstacles, like how do we save it and improve it? Oh yes, I get that question all the time, and I have a different answer every day. Yeah, what do you say? <laughs> oh, it ranges from, you know. Um, the secret to a happy relationship. I, I, I don't think in those terms, actually. It's <laughs> the first thing. It's like, not my language. I don't think about secrets, nor keys to, nor seven ways to, nor, you know, you don't 10 have, steps. You don't have the answer for us? Just like the bumper sticker <laughs> no. answer? No, but I do have a sense. In the American context, it's often a can-do question. You know, this is a society who thinks that every problem has a solution. And then one of my answers is that this dilemma between our need for security and our need for adventure and how we're trying to bring them together under one roof is maybe more a paradox that we manage and less a problem that we solve. Esther Perel's book on modern marriage and the tension between love and desire is called Mating in Captivity. Her full talk is at ted.npr.org on the show today, ideas around how we love. After the break, mom, dad, brother, sister, why we love them even when they make us crazy. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Salesforce. Today's customers want more from companies. Banks that are virtual financial advisors, hospitals that are digital wellness partners, and Salesforce, the customer relationship management solution, can help. Deliver those magical, personalized experiences customers want by uniting your marketing, sales, commerce, service, and IT on an integrated CRM platform. Learn how Salesforce brings customers and companies together at salesforce.com NPR. Thanks also to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Imagine how it feels to have an award-winning team of mortgage experts make the home buying process smoother for you. With a history of industry-leading online lending technology, Rocket Mortgage is changing the game. Visit rocketmortgage.com ideas. Jessica? Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states. 
NMLSConsumeraccess.org number 3030. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Push button, get mortgage. This week marks the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising, a turning point in the movement for LGBTQ rights. So in this week's episode of the StoryCorps podcast from NPR, we'll revisit the very first documentary our founder, Dave Isay, made back in 1989 called Remembering Stonewall. Listen and subscribe now. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today... Ideas around how we love. Psychologists have talked about six different types of love, and most of them deal with romantic love, the the kind that Esther Perel and Helen Fisher study. But what about love that is not sexual or romantic in in any way, the kind of love you feel for the, the people in your family? When my mother was, this is how people did things back in the 50s, when my mother was uh, 25 years old, she had four sons, four years old or younger. Wow. Yeah, it was amazing. This is Jeffrey Kluger. He's a writer for Time magazine. And a few years ago, he was trying to figure out what it was that creates a bond, the, the particular kind of love between siblings. Over the arc of decades, there may be nothing that defines us and forms us more powerfully than our relationship with our brothers and sisters. It was true for me, it's true for your children, and if you have siblings, it's true for you too. This picture was taken when Steve on the left was eight years old. I was six, my brother Gary was five, and my brother Bruce was four. I opened my new book, The Sibling Effect, on a Saturday morning, not long before this picture was taken, when the three older brothers decided that it might be a very good idea to lock the younger brother in the fuse cabinet in our playroom. (laughs) We were, believe it or not, trying to keep him safe. Our father was a hot-headed man, somebody who didn't take kindly to being disturbed on Saturday mornings, and he would react by stalking into the playroom and administering a very freewheeling form of corporal punishment, lashing out at whoever was within arm's reach. We were by no means battered children, but we did get hit, and we found it terrifying. So we devised a sort of scatter-and-hide drill. As soon as we saw or heard the footsteps coming, Steve, the oldest, would wriggle under the couch. I would dive into the closet in the playroom, Gary would dive into a window seat toy chest, but not before we closed Bruce inside the the fuse box. We told him it was Alan Shepard's space capsule, and that somehow made it work better. Um, Does Bruce hold this against you? Does he, he, like, traumatized by this? You guys (laughs) locked me in the fuse box. No, because our intentions were good. Believe me, we did all kinds of nasty things that were just flat-out nasty. But no, we locked him in the fuse box, yeah. which was a big wooden cabinet. Um, it didn't occur to us at the time, of course, that you know we were squeezing a three-year-old right up against this panel of old-style, <laughs> unscrewable, high-voltage fuses. So it's only in later life that I thought, maybe we should have rethought that. But my brothers and I, we were a unit, a loud, messy, brawling, loyal, loving, lasting unit. We felt much stronger that way than we ever could as individuals. And we knew that as our lives went on, we could always be able to call on that strength. There may be no relationship that's closer, finer, harder, sweeter, happier, sadder, more filled with joy or fraught with woe than the relationship we have with our brothers and sisters. Why is that? Well, the idea is that Your parents come along at the beginning of your life and then leave it too early. Your spouse and your children come along much later in your life. But your siblings are the only people who are with you through the entire ride, potentially from cradle to grave, and in the most formative part of your life. We're clay when we first meet our siblings. We're pretty much, you know, set and kiln-fired by the time we meet our spouses and a lot of our friends. But our siblings shape us. We learn from our siblings. 
We learn about mentoring. We learn about honesty, confidences. We learn about loyalty, keeping confidences. We learn about conflict avoidance, guilt and compromise, gentleness, caring, empathy, love. You know, um, on the show, we're also hearing from Helen Fisher, who talks about, of course, romantic love, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and there's been so many studies looking to the science behind attraction. Like, what is it that brings people together? And the love between siblings is so different, obviously, than romantic love, but even different than the love you have for and with your parents. Well, that's right. You share a whole lot of genes with your siblings. And you share experiences, and I think that's what makes it so powerful. My brothers and I, our upbringing when I was much younger was terribly volatile. There were divorces, there were drug addiction issues from one of my parents. So our software coding for fear, for trauma, was laid down at the same time and as a result of the same incidents. On the good side, we had other peak experiences. Even though we're Jewish, we celebrated Christmas, at least for the mercantile part of it. Um, And (laughs) that sheer consumer rapture of looking forward to a day of it being an acutely special day, I learned that in the same way and in the same living room as my brothers did. Until 15 years ago, scientists didn't really pay much attention to the sibling bond. And with good reason. You have just one mother... You have just one father. If you do marriage right, you have one spouse for life. Siblings can claim none of that uniqueness. They're interchangeable, a kind of household commodity. After we're born, we do whatever we can to attract the attention of our parents. Someone's the funny one. Someone's the pretty one. Someone's the athlete. Someone's the smart one. Parents exacerbate this further when they exhibit favoritism which they do overwhelmingly, no matter how much they admit it. A study I cite in the book, The Sibling Effect, found that 70% of fathers and 65% of mothers exhibit a preference for at least one child. And keep in mind here, the key word is exhibit. The remaining parents may simply be doing a better job of concealing things. And siblings can like can take those issues into adulthood, right? I mean, I mean they can get like hung up on who's the favorite or who's the most successful. And if your sibling turns out to be really successful and, and you're not, I mean, it can be really tough. Well, it's it's hard. When I first moved to New York, I moved up with my youngest brother Bruce, and he was no sooner here than he had mounted a musical comedy off Broadway. Um, he had oh written it God. himself. Yeah, he had written it. He was 24 years wow. old. Wow. He, he had written it himself. They got a, a major director, and I had just come up to New York with him. I had gotten a job in journalism working at the now defunct Soho Weekly News, but you know, there was no denying whose life had taken off faster. Yeah. And I'd like to say that I was enthusiastic and charitable, and, and but... but I was not, yeah. and you know it didn't reflect well on me. But you locked him in the in the closet, <laughs> in the fuse box closet. You deserve it. I know. I guess <laughs> it takes a while, but the scales do even out after after a time. <laughs> I listened to my young daughters talking late into the night, the same way my parents no doubt listened to my brothers and me talking. They're part of a conversation I'm not part of nobody else in the world is part of. And it's a conversation that can and should go on for the rest of their lives. From this will come a sense of having a permanent traveling companion, somebody with whom they road-tested life before they ever had to get out and travel it on their own. Having siblings and not making the most of those bonds is, I believe, folly of the first order. If relationships are broken and are fixable, fix them. If they work, make them even better. Failing to do so is a little like having a thousand acres of fertile farmland and never planting it. Yes, you can always get your food at the supermarket, but think what you're allowing to lie fallow. Life is short, it's finite, and it plays for keeps. Siblings may be among the richest harvests of the time we have here. Thank you. Jeffrey Kluger, his book on this is called The Sibling Effect. You can check out his entire talk at TED.com.
Finally on the show today, another love story that helped Angela Patton understand the power of connection. I can look at things a lot differently in how I raise my own children. My relationship with my own husband and my not only my father, but my mother too. My mom and father are still married. You know, and I'm like, that is how cool. Years, how many years have you been? 43 years. Wow. That's a long time. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> Love will conquer all. <laughs> Angela lives in Richmond, Virginia. And I'm the CEO for Girls for Change. And we help prepare girls for their passage into womanhood. And she also runs a camp for girls in Richmond. And every year, she helps them throw this giant prom-style dance for fathers and daughters. But one year, one of the girls in Angela's camp said her dad couldn't come to the dance. And because of that, she didn't want to go. Why not, the girls ask. Angela picks up the story from the TED stage. Because he's in jail. She bravely admitted. Well... Can he just get out for a day, one of the girls asked. (laughs) And come in shackles? That's worse than not having him here at all. At this moment, I saw an opportunity for the girls to rise to the occasion and to become their own heroes. So I asked, what do you think we should do about this? We want every girl to experience the dance, right? So the girls thought for a moment, and one girl suggested, why don't we just take the dance in the jail? Most of the girls doubted the possibility of that and said, are you crazy? Who is going to allow a bunch of little girls dressed up to come inside a jail and dance with their daddies in SpongeBob suits, because that's what they called them. I said, girls, well, well, you never know unless you ask. So a letter was written to the Richmond City Sheriff, signed collectively by each girl. And I would have to say, he is a very special sheriff. He contacted me immediately and said, whenever there is an opportunity to bring families inside, his doors are always open. Because one thing he did know, that when fathers are connected to their children, it is less likely that they will return. That was it. That was it. The sheriff was great about the decorations, you know, black, white, silver. So we have the balloons. Uh, we also have our picture banners so they could take photos. We have a red carpet, you know, um, the podium and the microphone, a DJ. So actually they receive the same experience that our fathers do at a regular father-daughter dance. So <laughs> 16 inmates and 18 girls were invited. The girls were dressed in their Sunday best, and the fathers traded in their yellow and blue jumpsuits for shirt and ties. They hugged, they shared a full catered meal of chicken and fish, they laughed together, it was beautiful. The fathers and daughters even experienced the opportunity to have a physical connection, something that a lot of them didn't even have for a while. Fathers were in a space where they were able to make their daughter's plate and pull out her chair and extend his hand for a dance. Even the guards cried. Because, you know, these are fathers. A lot of times they could have been the father that, you know, wearing his pants to the ground, tattooed all up and all hard or whatever the case may be. And he and the daughter now sees that softer side. She sees him apologizing and the games that we play. And then we teach them salsa and how to waltz. And they do hip hop together, you know. Did, did everybody just sort of forget where they were? Oh, yes. 
You know, if you have guards doing the electric slide and the wobble <laughs> with the inmates, I do think that they forgot where they were. What happened after? After the dance ended? I mean, the, mm-hmm. the dads obviously had to go back to their, their jail cells. Um, mm-hmm. and the daughters had to leave their fathers. Yes. So when that moment occurs, we also give the fathers another hour to reflect. And one father basically just asked to be in a circle with everyone and just said, brothers, I need a moment. Did you see those beautiful princesses walk out of our lives again because of our choices? And he said, I want to experience the dance that I bring my daughter to and that I take her home from afterwards. Because our daddies are our mirrors that we reflect back on when we decide about what type of man we deserve and how they see us for the rest of our lives. I know that very well because I was one of the lucky girls. I have had my father in my life always. He's even here today. And that is why it is extremely special for me to make sure that these girls are connected to their fathers, especially those who are separated because of barbed wires and metal doors. We have just created a form for girls who have heavy questions on their heart to be in a position to ask their fathers those questions and giving the fathers the freedom to answer. Because we know that the fathers are even leaving with this one thought, what type of woman am I preparing to put in the world? Because a father is locked in does not mean he should be locked out of his daughter's life. Angela Patton's talk is called A Father-Daughter Dance in Prison. It really is an incredible talk. You should check it out at ted.npr.org. Everybody's gonna love today, gonna love today, gonna love today. Everybody's gonna love today, gonna love today. Thanks for listening to our show on How We Love this week. If you missed any of it or you want to hear more or you want to find out more about who was on it, you can visit ted.npr.org. You can also find many, many more TED Talks at ted.com. And you can download this program through iTunes or through the NPR smartphone app. Our program was produced this week by Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Eva Grant, and Sanaz Meshkanpour with help from Portia Robertson Migas and Eric Newsom. Our amazing, awesome intern is Rund Abdel Fattah. Thanks to our partners at TED, Chris Anderson, June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz. You've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Love, love me, love, love me.